You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. During this period of my life when I was attending college, I lived in the state of Oklahoma uh, at the time, although I'm from Texas. And uh, when I was attending the University of Oklahoma, as part of my journey there, I had the, opportun- the opportunity to work at a, a copy shop. Uh, now it's, uh, I think it's FedEx office, but back then it was Kinko's. They hadn't been bought out by FedEx yet. Uh, and at that time I was working on, there was, a, there was a store on campus, but they were filled up. So I ended up working at the store that was about seven miles away from the campus. Uh, and during those years, I didn't have a car. So what I did was I used my bicycle to make it from home to work and back again. On this particular day, um, I was finishing up my shift. Uh, I was working the second shift during those times, and so I would work from 2.30 until 11 p.m. And on this night, it was 11, so I was hopping on my bike, hoping to make it home because the next morning I I had class at the university. And as I was pedaling home, uh, it was just really as I was thinking back about the memory of what happened, I just remember the street lights, the wind passing by me, my gaze being fixed on the sidewalk ahead, um, just the sound of the cars that would rush by every now and then were the only companions that I had for this journey to make it home as I traveled from street light to street light. On this particular night, as I was moving along in the stillness of the evening after 11 p.m., one of those cars, a, a truck, a pickup truck, did something different. It came along, slowed down to match my speed, and moved over close to the sidewalk that I was riding on. I looked over because I was unsure of what was happening, and I kept pedaling and pedaling and pedaling. Suddenly, the young men who were in the truck, uh, there were some in the back and some in the front, of course, began to yell out the word that no African-American wants to hear. And to make matters worse, they didn't stop at just simply yelling a word out. They wanted to express in a physical way how they felt about me. So they took their used cigarettes and hurled them at me. Afterwards, they, of course, sped off into the night, laughing as they left. I finally made it home to my apartment where I went inside, closed the door, locked it, shaken and afraid but thankful and relieved because I realized that others who had probably been in similar circumstances didn't always turn out that way. And I was just glad that it remained at a state of mild aggression. Now, that's a sad story that I open up with. And easily for us, we could dismiss it as an outlier, a one-off in life because we realize that there are bad people in the world. But my analysis of this event, when it was coupled with other things that happened in my life, began to lead me to a different conclusion as I began to analyze my life. As I reflected on other experiences, like when I would sometimes be in a store and I would notice how the salesperson would seem to always gravitate to where I was at when I was shopping, when I looked around the store, and the only difference between me and the other customers what had to do with what was the color of my skin. Or on one occasion when uh, there was a coworker who had revealed to me that my supervisors and my managers had been taking time to 
have some fun at my expense and by telling jokes about me based on the melanin amount that I had. Or even on one occasion, having a neighbor in the neighborhood when I was much younger release his pet dogs with the intent to do us bodily harm. It's in reflecting on those things that you could potentially understand why having those negative experiences, I began to have a worldview that was colored towards distrust and fear. I thought back to an experience in my teenage years. I still remember when my parents transitioned from what was a majority minority community to a community where we were only one of four minorities in the community of some 100 homes or more. I remember us living there, and I had a chance because there was a, another member of the community who moved in, and he was the only other uh, minority of about my same age. And so because we lived in the community, you can understand how we gravitated to, to one another and began to form a friendship. And he was a couple of young, years younger than I was. And so we spent time together hanging out. And on this particular day, uh, I was walking back. We were walking back home from my house to his house because he lived a couple streets away uh, at the end of a cul-de-sac. And we got to the stop sign where the cul-de-sac was at, and I could see his house, and you could look down the street to the end and see my house at the other end. And because his parents had were separated, that's why he had actually moved to our neighborhood, uh, he that specific day wanted to share how he was feeling about what was ultimately going to be a divorce between his father and his mother. And so trying to be a good friend, I simply listened. While we were there, and probably, I guess, about 20 minutes had passed, a police car pulled up to us. Now, this was strange for my neighborhood because where we lived at, we never had police patrol. They weren't in the neighborhood. We never saw them because it was a quiet community, and there was no reason for him to be there. But he pulled up directly to us. He stopped, and he asked, do you live in this neighborhood? And of course, we responded, yes, we do. And he asked us for our addresses, and we told him where we live, and we even pointed to our homes and where we were from. And he then encouraged us to depart from where we were at and make our way home. And because we were law-abiding citizens and children, and here was a, an authority figure who had stopped to come and talk to us, we did exactly as he commanded us to do. We ceased our conversation. He headed to his house, and I headed to my house. It was on the walk home that I began to reflect on what had just happened, and there were a couple of questions that came to my mind, like, first, what had I done wrong? We were just talking. And that led me to a follow-up thought, which was simply this. Why would one of my neighbors call the police on us? Now, I share these stories with you, but I realize that just like I have stories, you have stories and experiences which have shaped your view and perhaps your interactions with others who are different than you or even your thoughts about those issues that relate to them and how you think about those issues. And now for some, as I've read in different sources, it, it seems for some their perspective is that our country has moved past the unpleasantness of our history uh, from their view of how things were in the past to how things are now. But as Pastor Matt already has stated so well, 
this past year of 2020 reminded us that the racial tension in our country still runs deep. And hostility, unfortunately, is widespread. Perhaps as you listen to the news or other sources or as you read different articles, you realize that there was something going on as people decried the disparities in our country that seemed to happen along racial lines. In their book, Transcending Racial Barriers, sociologists Michael Emerson and George Yancey indicate that we live in what is called now a racialized society. And this is what has contributed to the divisions that we see amongst ourselves. By racialized, what they mean is that race deeply impacts the experiences, opportunities, and social relationships that we have. They said this, and I quote, based on volumes of research, statistics, and studies, U.S. society is racialized in at least the following areas. Health, death, employment, marriage, occupations, life expectancy, crime, personal and social identity, advertising, names, education, residential neighborhoods, auto loan rates, socioeconomic and spatial mobility, and the list went on for another half a page. The conclusion that we must come to is that race matters profoundly in the United States of America. But as Christians, we have something else that moves us in a different direction. And so we ask as Christians, because of our relationship with God, how do we move beyond the stories that our communities, racial and ethnic communities, have invested in us that have shaped our worldview? And how have our experiences be those good or negative? How do we get beyond them when sometimes they can hold us hostage to our particular perspective on reality? So that we end up taking steps. Not just simply as humans, but as people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So that we move in the direction of working on healing those wounds that separate us. Let me ask the question in another way. How do we move towards racial reconciliation? So that we're all on the same page, let me begin by offering to you a definition of one who is well-versed and has spent years studying and developing this definition. For that, I draw upon the 30-year career of Professor Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil who has worked on this definition and rearranged it and now has settled on this one after years of experience in working in the field of racial reconciliation. She said this, reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. Let me say that one more time. Reconciliation is the ongoing spiritual process include involving forgiveness, 
repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. So how do we as the people of God move toward restoring broken relationships between racial groups and broken systems that we might come across as we do our study, especially when we know that racial reconciliation is an arduous process. If you've ever embarked upon the journey of racial reconciliation, I'm sure that you could testify that it's not easy and it's not quick. I believe Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had the right idea that points us in the right direction when he said these words. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. I don't think he developed that definition in isolation. I believe he developed as a minister that definition in his reflection upon what Scripture says. Perhaps you remember the words that Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth in one of his letters when he said to them, listen, it was God who was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now, we as human beings who know what it's like to live with other humans might wonder why God, a being of perfection, would ever seek to repair the broken relationships between himself and us who are rebellious human beings, when God had never done anything wrong. I believe the gospel writer John gives us the answer in two very familiar passages of Scripture that you just probably already have memorized from your years of serving the Lord. In John 3.16, it was John who penned the words who said, it was for God so loved the world that he gave the Son. It was love. Later in that same gospel in John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus would say to his disciples, there would be no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. The father was motivated by love. The son was motivated by love. See, God acted this way because love is God's nature. The apostle John went on to say in his epistle, God is love. And so for us who are the people of God, those who have been redeemed and, and called out of the world to belong to Christ, for us at the heart of reconciliation, any true reconciliation, be it racial, marital, or occupational, is always love. And so today I want to show you two aspects of love. By no means is it exhaustive, but I want to show you two aspects that help us move in the direction of racial reconciliation. We find the first aspect for us captured in the words of Paul in the letter to the Romans, chapter 13. Paul penned these words by the Holy Spirit. If you're looking in your scriptures or on your phone, I'll give you a moment to find it. Paul writes to the believers in Rome, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. 
and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Little background here from those who've done studies about the contextual analysis of what was going on in that day. It seems as though uh, you had a church that had flourished, mainly Jewish and then Gentiles, as the gospel spread out beyond the Jewish community, became, became part of the church. And then the emperor at some point asked, or commanded rather, uh, the Jews to leave Rome. And so they left. And so the, the church then took on a Gentile nature. And when the Jews were, uh, that ban was lifted, they were able to return. Now you had a church that was composed of different cultural groups, Jews and Gentiles. And there began to be tension about their specific worship practices. And so they began to divide along ethnic lines. Most likely we could imagine it from our own selves knowing what church is like. To get into a church atmosphere where we're having debates about What's the right way to worship? And we began to cling to our cultural practices because what we view is the way that we've done church, the way that we worship God is right. And if the way that I worship God is right, then that must mean that the way you worship God is wrong. And it's into this situation that Paul, that Paul writes in a pastoral way. We remember the text that precedes this. He talks about the relationship of the Christian to government. And then he ends by talking about that obligation that we see in the Old Testament that he brings over to the New Testament that, that believers are required to pay the debts that they owe. Paul continues that metaphor and brings it forward and says, listen, there is a debt that is owed to other human beings that can never be fully repaid. The debt that is owed to other humans is love. When we look at some of the textual clues by Paul's word choice and the words that he uses in these verses, we realize that Paul's uh, purview, what he's looking at the group, is not simply within the context of the church, but broader society. Yes, may I even say broader humanity. And his focus on this particular text of what he's trying to get across is love, not just among those who look like me, but love specifically towards those who are different than I am. Paul goes on to explain, well, how do you make payments on this debt that is owed but can never be fully repaid? Paul says, when you display the same deep concern that you have for yourselves toward others, that's when you make an installment or payment on this debt. Paul then paints a picture for us that what love looks like in these instances is that it keeps us from doing harm to others. And thereby we see his point, and I give you my first point. Love constrains us. Love constrains us. Love keeps us from doing wrong to others. And Paul goes on to say here in the text, when we live by love toward others, we display what the intent of the law sought to accomplish in the human life. What might that look like in practice? Love moves us to control our speech, what James talks about in his epistle and letter to the believers. Because of love, we will not choose words that incite others to rage or degrade others. Love keeps us from operating based on the negative stereotypes that perhaps our communities have invested in us over the years. 
for instance, in the workplace, what this might look like is that when we are the person over the hiring practice, we will not simply dismiss a person's resume because we look at the name on the resume and realize that they are of a different ethnicity or racial group and push them to the side. Love holds us back from communicating falsehoods about others. Love restrains that impulse that we might feel at times when we're in certain situations to use our influence to benefit solely our our own group, even though we know it's going to disadvantage others. And love, of course, will keep us from doing bodily harm to others out of animosity or hate or whatever motive it might be. Love instead empowers us to respond, not in kind, when we've been done wrong. Love constrains us. Five years ago, an an event happened which made the news, which I'm sure that you're aware of. A gentleman by the name of Dylan Roof walked into Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in South Carolina. He would there attend a Bible study with well, let's just say not the best intentions, which he would later make known as he opened fire and claimed the lives of nine other people who were in the room with him. His intention, start a race war in the community. After he was arrested, some two days later, those who had been impacted by the efforts he had made to separate the community, those who had lost mothers and sisters and sons and husbands and wives, their loved ones appeared in court. It was the bond hearing day. And the judge, as part of the proceedings, allowed those family members who had been negatively and adversely impacted by this young man's actions, to have a moment to come and address the court and to say what was in their hearts and how they felt about what had happened to them now that they had been robbed of someone that they cared deeply about. But something unexpected happened. One of the first ladies up was Nadine Collier, and she said this when she had the opportunity to speak to the one who had done such damage to her life. I forgive you. You took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her ever again, speaking of her mother, and I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. They didn't say this in the voice of one who is holding back the emotion of tears. Now, not every family forgave him, but many did follow her suit. And it wasn't something that they had planned beforehand. It hadn't been premeditated. It just happened in the moment. Seeing what Dylan had hoped to achieve had the opposite effect on the community when forgiveness was given out of love. Instead of separating the community, the community came together to mourn the loss of these lives through such a tragic event. Because love does that when it constrains us. But that's not the only thing that love does in our lives. Not only does it constrain us, but there's another aspect that we see in Scripture. We find it in 1 John chapter 3. 
1 John chapter 3. Here, the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, speaks words as inspired by the Spirit of God. And he wrote to the believers, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, many of us from our own experience in the world, from media sources, from movies, from books that we read, from conversations that we had, we have definitions of love. The same was in John's day. The world was defining what love meant. And it's into that that John speaks and says to believers, God has defined what love is for you. For us, those who are the people of God, Christ's death on our behalf defines for us what it means to love others. As the people of God, we've, we're called to imitate him, as Paul wrote in some of his other letters. And thus the death of Jesus bids us to love others in the same way that Jesus has loved us. Now, you might ask, am I saying to you in this moment that, that what that means for you is for you to go out and to take a bullet for someone else? Well, if you work in a secret service, that might be one thing, but that's not what I'm saying here today. Thankfully, uh, John interprets for us what he does mean. He tells us here in the text that what he's talking about, the way that we do this is by taking the stuff of life, and that's kind of the words he uses, the stuff of life, the material things, the things that we gain in life, and use that to meet the needs of others. And he says in those moments when we receive from God good things in this life and we take those good things, don't cling to them, but see another in need and share them with them, in that way and in those moments, we bear the fruit of righteousness. We imitate the sacrificial death and love of Jesus. But John goes on to give a warning. He says, however, if we know about the needs of others and we in seeing that began to close ourselves off emotionally from that so that we are not uh, concerned about what's going on with them. Then he asks the question and, and makes the point by the question. As believers, then we have come to the point in which we have not allowed the love of God that we've received to yet have its influence in our lives so that we live like God. He goes on to emphasize by closing this section out, it's not words that matter most when it comes to love, but love expresses itself in action. Here's his point, and I would make my second point to you and final point. Love not only constrains us, but love compels us. See, the tremendous of love of God that has been expressed through what Jesus has done and him giving his life for us and through his resurrection by which we receive the wonderful gift of God's presence in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that promise that when Christ returns, we will be rescued from the wrath of God. That reality should cause love to pour forth from our hearts in being concerned about the welfare of others. Let me talk practically for a moment. This means that we're going to move towards others in love, even when they're different from us. At times, that might mean that we will need to listen to one another. I'll need to hear your story and experiences, and I'll share mine 
with you so that we could come to an understanding. It means that when we're negotiating different solutions, we don't simply look for solutions where there is a win-lose scenario, but we look for the best outcome, win-win scenarios. It means that we show concerns for things that are impacting others, even when we or our own group are not impacted by that issue. We use, as John says, our resources to help others. And on some occasions, it means that we have to alter, change, look at things from a different perspective than what we've grown up with or become accustomed to looking at the world through certain lenses. John says love requires action on our parts. And the love of Christ should move us toward forgiveness, repentance, and justice. So a few years ago, I came across a story and, and have been fascinated by it for years. I shared this with uh, those at our uh, local assembly at Living Water because of, of the impact that it had on me. I, I, I was blown away by it. It's about the story of a man by the name of Daryl Davis. And Daryl Davis is by trade a blues musician. But he has an interesting hobby in his spare time uh, that you might find that someone would not necessarily engage in. He's been doing it for over 30 years. Daryl is a black man, but he spends his free time befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan. He once said that the friendship blossoms, and then once that happens, the Klansmen realize that their hate may be misguided. And since Daryl started talking with members, he has the evidence of over 200 Klansmen who've given up their robe. Now, Daryl does something interesting with the robes. When uh, they give them up, he keeps them. And he has a closet with all these different robes that he showed to the news of different people at different positions in the Klan that have given those things up to remind himself of the dent that he's made in racism by simply sitting down and having dinner with people. In an article about uh, how this all transpired, this is what he said about how this worked out in his life and how he came to this place. He says the fact that a Klansman and a black person could sit down at the same table and enjoy the same music, that was a seed planted. And what do you do when a seed was planted? You nourish it. And that's what was the impetus for me to write a book. I decided to go around the country and sit down with Klan leaders and Klan members to find out how can you hate me when you don't even know me. The best thing you can do is to study up on the subject as much as you can. I went in armed, not with a weapon, but with knowledge. I knew as much about the Klan, if not more, than many of the Klan people that I interviewed. When they see that you know about their organization, their belief system, they respect you, whether they like you or not. They respect the fact that you have done your homework. And just like any good salesman, you want a return visit, and they recognize that I had done my homework, which allowed me to come back again. And those conversations began to chip away at their ideology because when two enemies are talking, they're not fighting. It's when talking ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. If you spend five minutes with your worst enemy, it doesn't have to be about race. It could be about anything you will find that you both have something in common. And as you build upon those commonalities, you're forming a relationship. And as you build a, that relationship, you form a friendship. And that's what would happen. I didn't convert anybody. They saw the light and converted themselves. 
Now, this was fascinating to me because Daryl would often attend Klan rallies, but he made an impact by operating in the way that Paul and John spoke about, which was love. But it's not just Ku Klux Klan. It doesn't just go one way. It can go the other way as well. And such I close with telling you about my own life. The experience earlier that I had in life had shaped me towards a view of distrust and fear towards those who were different than me. But in seminary, God began to use some experiences. And then 11 years ago, when I had the opportunity to come and work at Living Water Community Church, when I was loved by those who were different than me, God began to chip away and erode the distrust and the fear that I had towards others who looked different than me. So much so now that God has removed all of that from my heart. So now I have close friends who are not like me and not from my community that I love deeply and love very much. How did that happen? Because what I found is as we got together in the church and began to do ministry together, because of our common faith in Jesus Christ, we had more in common than we had that separated us and that we have a oneness in Christ. And that changed the person that I am and made me different in how I view the world. God can do the same for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you that we don't have to feel guilty about the things in the past. Because for that, we look to the cross of Christ. For where we failed, we know we're covered by the blood of Jesus. And so that frees us up, Lord to move into relationship with others who are different than us. Fill us, Lord, with the love that you have for us that have been displayed historically in Christ Jesus. May what you've done through Jesus for us compel us to go out into the world, and may it constrain us when we feel the impulses of the old nature, Lord. I pray, God, that you would free us so that we may operate in a new way that honors you. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.